Welcome to Lift Your Legacy. My name is Jacob Rupp, father, husband, and rabbi. And each week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you unlock your inner potential and create change that will impact the future. Thank you for listening, and let's get to it. I am so excited to have internationally renowned clinical neuropsychologist, inventor, and author, Dr. Amy Saren, who has a small goal of ending PTSD on a global scale, and she's well on her way. She co-founded the Touchpoint Solution, which is a company that gives access to a specific wearable technology that will relieve stress at any time. In addition, she is the author of The Stress Switch, which will be launching February 2019, and speaks about stress and overcoming it and how we have misunderstood this very important component of human existence. Uh, She's also a mother and an entrepreneur and has a tremendous amount of advice, both practical and psychological. And I look forward to sharing this information and this interview with you today. Great. Dr. Me, thank you so much for joining us today. I wanted to start with a question about how you manage that transition from your initial starting in international business and then transitioning into going back to school into neuropsychology. So it's an interesting story. I was really young when I made this transition. I I did everything so hard and fast. I graduated college when I was 21. And then by the time I was 27, I was a burnout executive (laughs) with eczema and a lot of health problems. I talk about this in my new book. And it was really just this complete pattern interrupt that one day I just woke up and realized living in Los Angeles, working and traveling internationally and doing all of this, this sort of dream that other people said I should be living was not a dream at all. And my passion was really in helping people and in neuroscience and psychology. And I thought, I'm just going to go back to school. And I did. And people thought I was nuts. You've got this great job. You've got this great life. You know, on paper, everything was aligning, but I really wasn't feeling it. And it was coming out in my health and it was coming out in my relationships. And I just one day woke up and said, yeah, I'm just going to do this. And, and in that moment, it was such a fearless decision. I really never looked back. Fascinating. The, the fearlessness, do, do you advise someone if they were going to make a, a big career transition, like you're suggesting um, that, that you did at that point and really listen to themselves, at what point do they wait and sort of make sure that it's not just a you know, bad couple of days at work and, and really that, that their life is going on a different path? What, what kind of techniques were you deploying or would you, you know, tell someone else to listen to now if they wanted to make that transition? You know, I like the image of kind of looking up to the heavens, but keeping your feet grounded, right? So you have these feelings and you want to follow them, but you still want to be practical as to how you implement them. So I didn't wake up and say, I'm doing this and quit that day. You know, I actually made sure that I was financially sound. I did a lot of research on the different programs I wanted to be in. In that moment, I made the decision. I felt the relief of the decision, but it still took me about three months to get everything in order to really implement that and apply for the schools and do all of those things. So I think you can be really have reverence for where you are and the authentic part of you that needs something different. And when you're out of alignment with your own life and you can balance that with practicality. And that's usually what I tell people to do. 
you mentioned that you had a mentor after you had started your other program in kind of the new, the new neuropsychological life that you were in, who really kind of put everything together, which led me to think was in the beginning of your second career, was there also kind of a, you know, you didn't really know where to go. What was it like having that experience where finally you got kind of honed in and what kind of advice could you give to someone that has started embarking on a second career, but hasn't really found their, their stride yet? Yeah, I think the mentor, I think this was who I was grateful for. Is that what yes, you're saying? exactly. Yeah, that actually didn't come until just a few years ago when I was in the midst of my invention and tech company, Touchpoint. So I had been kind of working off of this, you know, running on fumes of my own inspiration, you know, for that long. But I think when you are too busy and really imbalanced, you know, again, after graduating with my neuroscience and neuropsychology degree and having running clinics for 10 years and having two children and being married and divorced, and then, you know, finding, okay, I've got three clinics, I've got this startup company, I've got kids and I'm raising them by myself. When you're in that situation of just so much happening, you start to really lose the perspective of the forest for the trees. You really just have this foreshortened sense of future. And I think that's when we tend to lose sight of who we really are. So it was um, Scott, a dear friend, who actually kind of pulled me out of that and just said, with, with a digital image, said, this is, this is who you are and this is what you're doing. And I was like, oh, is that it? Because I'm just wondering how I'm going to pick up my kids on time, you know? And so really maintaining that balance of seeing, you know, of, of managing the daily life and, and sometimes you're in survival mode and then being able to pull out and see the bigger picture um, and then really getting that to to propel you back on the right track, I think is really important too. And I've had a lot of mentors along the way who have really kind of helped me rebalance. I think we all have different areas we need to rebalance. Some of us need more motivation, you know, and some of us need people to pull back the reins and help us see that we really are, are creators that create too much. And I'm one of those people. I take on too much. I create too much. I minimize the work that's going to go into something. And then I just go all the way in and just, you know, about kill myself doing it. And I realize now in my forties that that's not, um, that that's not the way to live. And there are actually things that were unresolved inside of my own self and insecurities and things that I needed to transcend in order to not be like that anymore. You know, I think whenever we create imbalance for ourselves, there's something that needs to be looked at. You know, there's some inner force that's driving us that is something unhealed or something that's not quite right. And when we can really look at that, you know, these experiences are here to teach us that there's more work that we have to do, you know, on ourselves and there's shifts that can be made. And that's really ultimately how we grow. That's fascinating as a clinician hearing that about your own experience. So to what extent when you are in that imbalance stage, does a person rely on themselves or their own training? You know, because again, if, if you were a, a fireman or something like that, you know, that, that, that's, that's one thing, but you actually study this and you're helping clients get, go through PTSD, you know, uh, rehabilitation and, and all these other kinds of things. You're dealing with stress, yet you are at the same time building so much and finding yourself stressed. Yeah. So what extent does a person try to reach out Perhaps professionally, you could say, you know, as you build all of these different businesses and manage everything, to what extent do you look for partners to sort of balance you out? And to what extent would you advise someone seeking um, outside help, even if they might have tools for stress management or work in the field of helping other people? 
Yeah, there's a lot in that question. So let me make sure that I that I have everything. I think um, just like a, you know, a cardiologist has a beating heart, they need to be mindful of. You know, neuropsychologists and psychologists, we're not immune from the human condition. You know, we all have our own quirks, we all have our own personalities. You know, we're not this blank slate just because we have knowledge. And so I think that um, psychologists are typically very aware that they need um, to, you know, balance kind of their inner and outer lives and kind of have that awareness to the extent that they do that is is really sort of individual. Um, and I don't know, I lost sort of the last part of that question, um, but I think it was when you seek outside help. And I think we're always seeking outside help, um, whether we're reading an article and trying to gain insight from it, or talking to a friend about a situation that we don't know how to handle, or going to a therapist, or trying to change our diet. I mean, we're, we're actually obsessed in our culture, I think, with seeking help, and we're over-seekers. Um, in the written part of our interview, I mentioned, you know, sometimes the answers to just not get caught up in the hype. We're bombarded now with current media in a thousand and one things that we can add to our day or we can do differently. And what ends up happening is if you think of life as kind of coasting on this sailboat, you know, we're overcorrecting in the wind all the time. So you get this zigzag pattern. And if you just kind of sometimes stay on one course, you really can kind of enjoy the ride and get to certain destinations. But we're this society that's obsessed and overcorrecting and, oh, do I do the paleo diet or do I do a CrossFit or just run or, oh, this is the thing or that's the thing. And if you really take a step back, um, we don't have to be doing all these things. And sometimes the answers to life improvement is doing more, but sometimes the answers are slowing down and letting go. And that gets missed in our digital culture. How did you figure out your priorities? Because the, the premise of the question is clearly you are highly driven to help people, highly driven to innovate, to create new ideas. On the same time, you are raising children. Um, you were, you're in a marriage, you got divorced, you, now you're raising advisor. So how did you... And, and to this day, like, how did you, how do you think about the priorities as they, as they come at you? And how have you, as a person that starts a lot of different kinds of things, how have you learned how to temper that now so that you are most focused and showing up in the best capacity possible? I love that question because it assumes, it assumes I do have my priorities straight. So thank you. Of course. <laughs> thank you. You're so that question. Um, so here's the thing, and I tell this to a lot of people, and, and moms and women especially have a hard time for this. Um, when you're in an airplane and you need to put the oxygen masks on, you have to put yours on first and then your child's. Because if you are not breathing, you're no help to anybody. And I have classic codependent mom syndrome of putting myself last. I did, putting myself last and everybody else and every other thing first, you know, work, my responsibilities, you know, all these things. And I really needed to transcend that and put myself in the group of people that I was caring for, you know? And um, a lot of people think that it's selfish, especially women, to go into self-care and to have some kind of a balance. But it really is a necessity because it makes you better for everybody else. And when I can't convince one of my patients to go into a state of self-care, I can convince them that if it's better for their children, they should do it and then they'll do it. You know? So um, 
just balancing out and not denying that I have needs as a human being, that I have needs for balance, that I have needs for solitude, that I have, I can make requests of a partner um, and it's okay. You know, I really needed to rebalance there. And some people struggle with that and some people don't. What kinds of techniques and tools do you provide, do you work with yourself when it comes to needing to rebalance? And to what extent do you find yourself teaching I mean, and you have this amazing product that you're working on that's supposed to help, and maybe you can explain a little bit how that works. So to what extent are you teaching and kind of providing information, and to what extent are you trying to uncover and allow a person to sort of like listen to themselves? Yeah. So on a very grand ethereal scale, the, the cause of all human suffering is really mind identification and attachment anyway. Okay. So when I, I do get people to listen to themselves to change the way that's happening, because ultimately our lack of mind control is a problem. Consciousness is great. I love consciousness. I'm so glad you and I have it because it allows us to plan things out and it separates us from animals and we get to do all kinds of great things as human beings. However, the price we pay for consciousness is an unchecked mind so that when we wake up in the morning, it's, I got to do this, I got to do that, I got to do this. And there's all these things that we can't control. And the content of that unchecked mind is really a problem for most people. What, what, do, you mean the un, what do you mean the unchecked mind, just to, to clarify? Well, the first step in identifying your thoughts is to know that you're not your thoughts, right? Because you can observe them, okay? So an unchecked mind is really somebody, uh, I mean, someone who identifies with their mind. They believe automatically the thoughts that are coming in that are spontaneously generated. And if those are neutral or positive, that's all well and fine. But if they're negative uh, or self-deprecating, then that's a problem because you start to believe in all of these illusions and then it, it affects our functioning. So the first step is to realize there's a separation between you and your thoughts. And then what do we do with these thoughts? And that's where it gets tricky. And that's where people have really convoluted the human psyche because your thoughts are spontaneously generated in concert with your nervous system. And this is where the tech product comes in. They're called touch points. And it's a bottom up calming down of the nervous system in real time. And it spontaneously changes the content of those thoughts. So we, we call them training wheels for meditation. You know. 20 years ago, people thought meditation was snake oil. And now everybody's like, of course, it's amazing. Of course, it's great. But then sit down on a mat and try to meditate. And people want to hang themselves after 15 minutes because they're so frustrated. If we give them a physiological hack, a neuroscience hack that's non-invasive, those thoughts can spontaneously change. That nervous system reactivity changes. And then they don't have to try to control their mind so much. Because when you're in any kind of a stressful situation, or even if you're sitting trying to meditate and you can't control your thoughts, your sympathetic nervous system is in charge. And that's the nervous system associated with fight or flight. When that's in charge, the problem is, is that your thinking brain starts to shut down. So it's a very, very crazy thing that I think in 2019, we are not telling people, hey guys, you're using a really inefficient strategy. You know, I'm not gonna go do CrossFit with my pinky. It's not a good strategy. Yet we're trying to use consciousness to control this very, very powerful primitive system in our brain that ex has an extreme amount of power. But if we just hack into it non-invasively, it's much, much easier. 
the 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 bigger question here that that's absolutely fascinating. I'm not sure if you certainly. I'm I'm assuming that that you have a, a clear vision on on the future. But has it? Are we like kind of out of whack? I don't know if like historically it's it's been different. I'm sure that man. Uh, people themselves have always dealt with these kinds of issues and, and, and thinking, but like, is there something unique about our culture that has thrown us into these kind of, this chaos where the, you know, PTSD and all of these stress-related uh, illnesses are so prevalent? Is it just that we're becoming more aware of it? And do you think that we're moving in a direction that's going to, it's going to be, obviously, hopefully everyone gets, you know, your, your touch points changes, changes the world, but are we moving towards uh, a more exacerbated problem, or is it going to get better? Do you think as technology develops? I guess. Okay, so the question is about you know kind of why we're in the state we're in. Where and we fit on the timeline? What, yeah. what is the hope for the future? You know, yes. how do I think? How do I think that the scales are going to weigh in? Yes. Okay. There's a lot of reasons why we're in the state that we're in, and the the overarching principle is that we're not living in accordance to how our biology is supposed to be living. We're supposed to be living in tribes in natural candlelight and or, you know, starlight with our circadian rhythms regulated in an area where our genetics are very suited to live in, right? And we're not doing that. So I was doing consulting for a company working in Africa and they were really excited because they were gonna build a grid and allow there to be electricity after 8 p.m. at night. And I went, oh no, because as a <laughs> neuroscientist, I'm thinking, this artificial light is gonna jack this society up now. Everybody has to actually go to bed without electricity because they're not, um, when you expose to artificial light at night, it actually changes your circadian rhythm. Your brain thinks that it's daytime and your pineal gland, which signals all these great hormones and all these regulatory things that happen, doesn't work. Now there's hacks for that too, but when we're living out of accordance of how we're supposed to in our biology, a lack of physical touch, a lack of kinship and community, um, being in front of digital screens instead of uh, in with real people and uh, not sleeping enough, eating you know all of these crazy foods, processed foods, all these things make our actual systems, our organisms more prone to mental illness and physical disease. So when I was looking at what I wanted to spend my time doing, you know, I'm, I'm really, I really love efficiency and um, big scale things. I thought, okay, what's the one thing that if I could change it would change the global condition more than anything else? And the answer was stress because stress is incredibly inflammatory. And we know that when children, you know, we actually, insurance companies have done this. Kaiser Permanente in the, you know, 1970s or 80s did this study of 17,000 people and thought, okay, we're going to look at the 10 questions that are going to predict health, wellness, mental illness, you know, death, addiction, all these things. What are the 10 questions we can ask people that can most get us to be able to correlate this? What predicts human suffering more than anything else? Childhood trauma. The 10 questions are all about what happened to you as a kid. And the reason why it's about childhood trauma is when you go through developmental trauma, your nervous system, sympathetic nervous system and stress system gets out of whack. And it inflames your body and it continually perpetuates impulsivity, reactivity. So your brain and your body actually change in accordance with that stress. Just to, just to, I'm sorry to interrupt, just to, just as a, as a clarifying question, when we say trauma, 
I think that the way that a lot of people define trauma, like to what, what counts, so to speak, as trauma okay. is, a, you know, yeah. obviously a major event is called trauma, you know. It's not that yeah, it's, like that. yeah, it's not, did, your, did you get in a bad car accident, right? Childhood trauma is what happened in your family of origin that would stress you out as an organism? Did your parents get divorced? Um, did you witness domestic violence? Did you feel, you know, did you grow up in poverty and were you neglected and abused? Things that cause people to go into a state of fear or stress, that is uh, identified as trauma. Great. Okay. Thank you. So, so, so you were saying- Thank as you for that, that link, right, because I'm in that trauma world. So it's not, you know, blunt force trauma. It's not getting punched necessarily. It's just what, is, what stressed you out as a kid and how many stressors were there, basically. So- when you look at that, stress moderates, you know, 80, 90% of all physical and mental disease. And so if we can change that even a little bit as a person's developing, or even now, no matter how old you are, in, in every moment, if you have access to that, you're a better human being. And people have got it sort of right. They're trying to do that with, you know, exercise and meditation and healthy living. That's great. It takes so much effort. I needed to figure out how, when I go into Africa post Ebola, right? How do I de-stress? How do I take down the nervous system reactivity of entire villages so they can restabilize and don't develop PTSD? And this was the answer. As a person that works with parents and as, some, and as a parent yourself, so how much of your clinical practice and this concept of because there, there is so many different schools of thought out there. What do you advocate or what have you put into practice as a result of your studies when it comes to raising children to try to alleviate the trauma that they have as to make them more successful and less stressed out adults? There's, there's two things. The, the tech product is really designed for anyone to have access to stress relief at any time. And as it turns out, when you lower the nervous system's reactivity, um, we have a new study that shows that it lowers cortisol, okay? And it also can help people who are nervous focus. So kids with ADHD and um, even autism are using it quite a bit in the classrooms. It also may interfere with pain perception because when people are stressed out, they actually feel more pain, even if there's not a worse physical um, physical trigger of pain. So it's really amazing how your brain works. And I won't go into the salience network in the brain and how this all works. This is based on very, very solid neuroscience. And if you want to geek out with me, I'll show you the EEG studies later. But that's one thing. That's just anybody can have access at any time. And that grew out of all of my work in my clinics. In my Seren Center clinics in Arizona, we really focus on uh, EMDR therapy and neurofeedback and neuromodulation. And then some integrative care with developmental pediatrics and, and psychiatry when necessary. And then some cooler cutting edge stuff like photobiomodulation and all kinds of, you know, Jetsons kind of futuristic things that we know are non-invasive. But my approach is to always start non-invasive because I think people want to, when, when we don't understand something, we want to overcomplicate it, Right. Before we knew what caused the rain, we wanted to have rain gods to explain it and all these things. So people want to inject things and take pills and have these big, huge medical apparatus, equipment things, doing all this. You really don't need all of that typically to hack into the nervous system in real time. We can simplify things and make things non-invasive. 
And depending on someone's makeup and what they've been through, they may require you know, a lot of different things to really help them thrive. But um, anyone can benefit in any time with just trying to reduce their sympathetic nervous system. And if they're trying to do that consciously, it's just a lot of work. Okay, so in every moment, you know, it's I, the great example is I was at the um, transformational tech conference a few months ago in Palo Alto, and I have a good friend, uh, Dr. Sanjay Manchanda. He's doing all kinds of crazy things with um, pulsed ultrasound and consciousness with monks and all these things, and he's an experienced meditator. So whenever he would hold the touch points, the stress devices, he'd say, Amy, I don't feel any difference. And I said, of course you don't feel a difference. You're already in a calm state, Sanjay. I've got to stress you out. And he's like, I don't get stressed out. I said, well, okay. And I giggled a little because I knew what I was going to do. And that was right before he went to speak at the Trans Tech Conference. He was stressed out. And I put them in his hands and I said, now how is it? And he goes, now I understand. And I said, even monks get stressed out when you start to identify with your ego and how people are going to perceive you and public speaking is this great way to kind of stress anyone out and um, one of our studies is actually during public speaking showing that people stay in the zone of performance and their cortisol stabilizes so you can get through these stressful events and perform better theoretically and also not be burnout afterwards if you have a hack that's moderating that nervous system activity. It's really exciting. So. What's, what's, what's next for you as someone that is, I think that you, you know, obviously this, this situation, this problem is so widespread and you are so active and coming up with, with, with innovative solutions. Do you like, are you switching now? Or are you just focusing on trying to get the touch point system out to more people? Like what, what are you thinking in the next like three years, the next 10 years, or do you not think like that? Oh, I totally think like that. But, but back to the, you know, head in the clouds, feet on the ground. I think of all those things. I'm not attached to the outcome though, because otherwise I'll drive myself crazy, right? It doesn't have to look a certain way, but my, my goal is, to really get the word out and to have more people using the touch points. With any paradigm shift, it takes time. You know, the guys that create uh, figured out that you could cure ulcers with, um, with an antibiotic, it took everybody 10 years. They thought they were quacks. They proved it over and over. They eventually won a Nobel Prize, but it takes people a while to come around to something new, especially if it's not complicated. So our, my goal with touch points is just to change as many as lives possible and to kind of introduce this new paradigm shift into the world and say, hey, there's something that's simple. There's something that's easy. You don't have to come all the way to my clinics, but you can have access and anybody who's around you can have access to stress relief in real time. And that has a huge impact. It's really the gift that keeps on giving. So we are continuing to innovate um, new uh, products with touch points and just integrating with an app and some digital cool digital things um, and then I did write a book called the stress switch and that book is coming out in February probably end of February and that's also just to kind of spread the word and really talk about some of the research and how we're misunderstanding stress to our detriment I think stress management in and of itself is very stressful right because People want not to be stressed, so then they try to add all these things to their plate and do all these things. And, and I think I have a different message that will be well-received for people who want to 
uh, create great change in their life, but don't have eight extra hours a day to do it. <laughs> and fi final question after, before I ask how people can follow you and get more information about the different products in the book and everything like that is, is do you find yourself as an outlier in the medical community? Do people look at you in the, in, the, in general, the medical industry, which, which, you know, is very, you know, quick in a lot of ways to, to prescribe stuff. And, and, you know, like you said, the whole idea that people really don't want what's simple and we want to create this very complicated thing. Are people looking at you as your nuts or you're finding that your idea and your methodology is actually becoming more, much more easy to, to take in than, than you might've expected? Yeah. So there's microcosms within the medical community. And I think it depends on, on where, where I am. I didn't invent bilateral stimulation. It's been used in 30 years in EMDR therapy. I just improve the waveform and put it in a digital device that to give anybody access. So in certain circles, I'm speaking at international conferences. It's very, very well received, especially within the community that understands um, that, that the real neuroscientists that understands neuromodulation and the brain's networks that they, they just immediately get it as soon as you, you know, put it into their hands. The good news is for the rest of the medical community or the people who have maybe more than a healthy dose of skepticism and they're very entrenched in their own ways of doing things is that this, it doesn't, it's not a threat to anything. It's, it's something that can be additive. So I'm not saying this is going to replace all pharmaceuticals or do this or that. So I think there's always people that really want to stay entrenched in the status quo and that's just with anything, like I said, any paradigm change. But this, the technology and, and the science behind it, now that we've got, we're amassing our own research behind it, we have triple blend placebo controlled studies going on and things like that. It really um, is, it's coming around. And I think, I think the most common response I get is the, I could have had a V8 response where I'm in front of, you know, a neurologist and I go, here's what I did. And then they, they hold it and they're like, I, I don't know why I didn't think of that. You know and I'm like? I don't know why anybody did either. I was shocked. I'm <laughs> shocked that I'm the one, but here I am. So. Fantastic. Okay. Dr. Amy, thank you so much for your time. Please tell uh, our listeners how they can follow you, get access to your book, get access to your product. Great. So, um, amysarin.com, A-M-Y-S-E-R-I-N.com is, uh, has information on the book and it also has links to touch points and my clinic website. There you have it, folks, another inspiring episode. If you enjoyed this, I ask you to please share this with your friends and to like us over on Rabbi Rupp through Facebook or on YouTube. And the more that we're able to get these important messages out, the more that we can really make an impact in the world. So I encourage you, please, to stay tuned. Uh, we have a ton of amazing speakers coming up and also to tell your friends about it. Thank you very much.